0: Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, uh, Paul Niefer, and today we're joined by Kurt Covington. And uh, and I've known Kurt now, oh man, too many years. Uh, We're we're definitely starting to show our age, Kurt. So, uh, how are things going?
1: We only get better with age, Paul. Just remember that.
0: Sort sort of like good wine. Doesn't good wine supposed to get better with age?
1: Yeah, yeah. As long as you keep, as long as you keep it at the right temperature, which is kind of where I'm at today too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, speaking of that, you know, I actually, uh, when I drove into work this morning, I had a couple inches of new snow on part of the trip. Uh, I don't think you're anywhere near where there might be snow. Uh, why don't you? fill in the listeners uh where you're at right now
1: well i live in florida now i'm halfway between kind of tampa and uh in orlando florida a little town called lakeland which is the headquarters of ag america lending and i've been living here for a couple years prior to that i was living up in the virginia area so and uh, so i know a little bit about cold weather uh but now i'm kind of basking in the humidity
0: I was going to say Virginia in the summer and Florida in the summer for us Northwesterners, you know, Pacific Northwesterners, it's, it's still humid. I, I'm
1: not uh, interested in being there at, at that time of year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I've lived in desert climates and I've lived in the humidity and I, I guess none of them are all that great. <laughs> none of them are all that great, but you live with it, right?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Cause if you're in the desert, then your skin gets a little dry and, uh, and and all that good stuff. So why don't we just why don't we go ahead and start off with uh, your background, where you grew up, uh, where you went to college and and uh, um, and what what
1: your career has been? Sure. Thanks, Paul. Uh, So I've been in ag lending now, I think it'd be 42, 43 years. I started uh, grew up in a small farming community south of Fresno, California, a little town called Selma, which is has over the years been identified as the raisin capital of the world yep. and uh yep. raisins is of course headed there and it's one of the first had the really the first bargaining association between growers and packers which is kind of interesting and uh you know there's a somewhat of a federal uh marketing order around that yep. product still yet so I grew up in farming my family farmed uh, walnuts and grapes and Raisin grapes, wine grapes, Um, we had some almonds. We actually had some open ground that was farmed in vegetable and cotton and a few things over the years. And then um, in about, and so that that dates back, I had uh, uh, six brothers and sisters and uh, all the rest of them kinda decided Selma, California wasn't the place for them. And so I stayed and my father died when I was uh, fairly young uh, you know, teenager, and so stayed on, worked with my mom on the farm, and, uh, and then headed off to college. Um, so I went to school down in Los Angeles, uh, USC, got a degree in uh, finance, and then went to work uh, for a little while in banking, and then went back and got a master's degree in agribusiness from Santa Clara University. And then started my banking career it was actually late 1979 it just seemed really attractive to me i could continue to help my mom on the farm and, and uh, but go to work in the farm credit system and so so i did late uh i'm gonna say it was 1979 1980 and of course you know i thought well this is really kind of a neat deal i um i kind of thought well you know I, I see bankers go to work at 10 and the end at 3 <laughs> uh, they take Fridays off with their clients, and uh, kind of four or five years into it, we had the farm crisis in the eighties, and so uh, I, I found myself um, in the business of collecting loans, not making loans. Right. Um, I, uh, after leaving Farm Credit, I uh, went to work. Uh, started with uh, Rabobank, and Rabobank had had always been in the United States for a long time prior, but mostly in the corporate agribusiness space and but they started direct lending to to agriculture to farmers ranchers and small agribusiness firms and that was headquartered actually out of fresno california yep so that had been in the very early 2000s um and uh stayed there for a brief period of time but uh over the years um uh, and I'd only I was there for probably uh, oh about three years, but you know there's the old saying if you ain't Dutch you ain't much. Yeah. Uh, I left there and became uh, 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 head of division credit for Bank of the West, which was also headquartered in Fresno for their agribusiness division at the time. They were the third largest ag lender in the United States and worked there for about 12 years and then uh, was offered the opportunity as a chief credit officer and and executive vice president at Farmer Mac in Washington, D.C., so I uprooted my family, uh, moved them. I actually moved into Washington, D.C. for about a year and then uh, moved south of the Potomac River into northern Virginia, lived there for an extended period of time, about six years, took retirement, uh for six days, realized I really didn't like retirement as much as it <laughs> sounded great. Um and and I had done some business um while my time at Farmer Mac with this company called Ag America Lending in Florida. And we had built some balance sheet products for them and and some products that would help not only conventional borrowers, but borrowers that might be struggling, borrowers that might be having some issues. Um, and so I came down here uh, about two years ago, and um, what is called the Senior Director of Institutional Credit. I think the senior part has to do with age, not experience. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's, uh, uh, there's sometimes there's a lot of validity to that statement. I guess, uh, you know, back to the Bank of the West, you know, we have a few branches out here in Washington State, and I noticed, oh, about a year, maybe two years ago, that they were starting to put the BNP Paribas Name mm-hmm. on the on the signage, and now they're being sold to BMO. So uh, you know that all that signage that that is basically going to be worthless.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um uh, one French bank buying another. Uh, uh, that's probably the way it should stay. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. French Canadian buying uh,
1: uh, the the mother the mother country, so to speak. So
0: exactly, exactly. It's
1: I mean, an excellent. It's an excellent bank. Um, and had deep roots in agriculture and agricultural finance and I still have a lot of good friends there yeah yeah
0: and uh, you know you were mentioning almonds, you're in that part of California where it's almonds versus almonds, you know I, I you know that uh, <laughs> I never know exactly where that dividing line is
1: uh, between north and south so uh. <laughs> yeah, you know in Fresno South we all call them almonds almonds and I guess uh. F- further north they call them almonds after they shake the l out of the tree yeah,
0: exactly exactly so uh, <laughs> and for the farmers out there that's a uh, california almond grower joke so <laughs> yep, yeah,
1: exactly exactly <laughs> but,
0: but, so you're now at ag america maybe for the listeners out there just uh, describe a little bit more detail as to uh, what ag america
1: does yeah so ag america is the largest uh, I guess easiest way to describe it, the largest non-regulated agricultural mortgage originator in the United States. We originated last year about a billion dollars in mortgages for, for, agri, for farmers and ranchers and agribusiness. Our footprint is over all 50 states, although I can't see myself doing a deal in Alaska anytime soon. <laughs> um, and so um, we have several different Ways of not only originating the loans, but what we do with those loans once they're originated. So, Ag America is uh, probably one of the top originators and sellers into the secondary market to mortgage secondary mortgage uh, companies. Uh, some that probably familiar with, obviously the one I mentioned earlier, which is Farmer uh, Mac and there are other ones such as agra access that um, are in the business of of assisting rural community banks and originators like us to gain access to long-term favorable long-term rates um, uh, much easier than obviously would be without them and so we do originate and sell about sold about half or so of our portfolio last year into the conventional secondary market the other half we uh uh we pretty much kept on our balance sheet and the loans we keep on our balance sheet are usually the ones you know you might describe as the scratch and debt loans or the loans that maybe have a little bit of hair around them or maybe they've got uh, some distress issues but the point is is to provide them some um, payment relief with interest only money up to five years uh, help them restructure their balance sheet or help them get through a tough time and then eventually uh, refinance that loan into uh, conventional debt. And, you know, it's something that's been missing in agriculture. And Ag America is probably one of the early adopters of that program. And I helped when I was at Farm Mac, helped them kind of build a program for that and that was I think gosh almost seven years ago now maybe six or seven years ago now so they were kind of the early adopters of that type of program and it's been very very successful and I and I'm also proud to say it's helped out a number of farmers and ranchers in rural America to help them get back on their feet
0: and and so Ag America is strictly providing real estate financing not doing any type of operating
1: loans is that correct uh, that's correct, but uh, we'll leave the door open for other opportunities down the road. Okay, okay. And, and then so
0: the, the you know, the I, I, I would guess that the, if you have a loan or a farmer that's got a little bit more, let's say, hair that you're talking about, obviously there's going to be a little bit more of an interest rate adjustment to maybe a little bit more of an upfront uh, fee associated with that. Is that. Is that an accurate statement?
1: very accurate statement right and uh obviously for us we're willing to take some balance sheet risk but obviously with the risk comes a little bit higher reward for for ag america uh you know this isn't the business of gouging farmers and ranchers but the rate you know if a conventional rate was let's say they could go out and get well i i say it depends on what day of the week it is now (laughs) but if they can go get if they can go get four percent conventional money because they're grade a credit you know grade c credit which maybe has just you know needs a little bit of help you know they might be 100 basis points over that
0: well that's, you know that, and if it's that's, a if that's it's, not bad
1: no if it's a degraded credit you know for the lack of a better way of describing it de- you yeah know, you might be as high as two two and a half points higher but while you're paying a higher interest rate, you're also not having to amortize debt. So right, in right. the end, it, you you ultimately get cash flow relief. And of course, we've done some that are even tougher than that. And then kind of the rate starts heading a little bit north. Yep, yep, yeah.
0: And, you know, and, and it's just curious. I think we all assumed a month ago that, you know, the Federal Reserve was going to raise rates probably next week. And, you know, even a lot of people were thinking it was going to be a 50 basis uh, 50 points uh, higher, and then now with the Ukraine crisis, the Russia invading Ukraine, we're just not sure exactly what's going to happen. Matter of fact, 10-year rates have gone down, or all the interest rates are really gone down, maybe 20, 25 basis points. Um, what What is Ag America seeing as far as the trend for interest rates maybe over the next six months?
1: Man, that's... Ugh. That's a really good question. I, I would have said, or I did say, and I think you and I've talked about this, you know, you know, the last time we were together, um, you know, probably six, seven weeks ago, um, I would have said a minimum four rate hikes, a minimum of 25 to 50 basis points per hike yep. for a maximum of maybe potentially 2%, 200 basis points or 2% increase in uh, rates across the board uh with certain you know terms and tenors being higher and less but generally 200. I would say what I'm seeing now is you know this Ukraine Russia Ukrainian crisis uh has really I I think the Federal Reserve has kind of stepped back and say well wait a minute here we're seeing what the implications are on this are on the stock market we're seeing consumer sentiment uh kind of being affected by this we certainly see international trade we're seeing continued supply chain issues the cost of fuel the cost of fertilizer yeah. you know, the cost of labor and the cost of other inputs uh continuing to rise adding higher interest rates to that mix for consumers and commercial and agricultural credit maybe now is not the right time to be jumping the bit ba- you know jumping up 50 50 base points so i think Right now, I think my I'm not sure where the Fed's going to be. I <laughs> my guess is we may not see much of anything um, in in you know the the very near future. It just kind of depends on how this whole Ukrainian crisis shakes out. That's just my opinion. I do yeah. see rates going up longer term through 2022 and into 2023.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think I, I think the Federal Reserve may just hit. Hey yes we're going to raise rates but we're doing a little bit of a pause here because we don't know what's what's you know what what is going to be like a month from now we don't even know what's going to be like two days from now so uh um you know although the market you know the stock market is actually up today but it was down heavy yesterday so is this a snapback rally or is it uh, something that's going to be sustained it's too soon to know
1: so yeah you know it's it's the most interesting thing it's the, the the stock market has been so incredibly volatile, um, yet it keeps bumping up against resistance, but I think it keeps attempting to find support. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it goes down 700 points. It goes up 600 points. So we, we're kind of in that trading range. But, and, you know, I it's interesting. Uh, and then I look at the commodity prices and, and where we are in that space, and the whole thing just seems um, a bit out of sync to me.
0: Well, it's it,
1: look at you know I'm uh, I'm a uh, I grow wheat or
0: I mean on my farms I grow wheat and you know yesterday I think we had about a two hundred or a two dollar um, range on the wheat price and actually today uh, on the spot price I see it's down a dollar fifty two it looks like but it's still trading at thirteen bucks so you know it's uh, you know we still have a pretty good uh, a pretty good rally going on in wheat but it's not necessarily all. Going directly to the grower. I mean, I, I think what's happening. We know that the the there's an ETF out there called Wheat W E A T. Um, they've had a massive inflow of money into that ETF. The ETF then's got to go to the you know, Chicago Board of Trade or wherever it might be to start buying these contracts. And then they're saying, "Oops, we're running out of limits." You know, there's limits on those things, so it's it's going to be pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean you know that obviously i think in some of these markets the speculators have taken over but i guess that's good news at least for the top line the revenue line for farmers right and it's going to be i think unfortunate for consumers yeah
0: although again i'm looking at crude oil right now it peaked out uh, what on monday at 130 now it's at 115 so down eight bucks today so just we just know it's going to be extreme volatility over here until this uh Whole crisis in the Ukraine is is finally
1: resolved one way or another. Agreed, 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 Paul.
0: Well, and I, I think the other thing, and you and I have certainly have done events together where we talk about uh, the farmer's role in providing financial information to to bankers to others. Um, let's just sort of go through and and actually I had another discussion with Ashley Arrington which we've done you know that together but what what do farmers maybe do well on on providing information what do they maybe don't do so well well
1: you know we've been fighting this battle as bankers and as CPAs and as financial consultants and even as farmers this whole issue of of financial reporting right and you know over the Over the last 20, 30 years, I think we've seen some headway, but the challenge with it is, is that farmers continue, as they continue to grow their business, they don't necessarily see the need to improve their financial reporting as they grow that business. There's an old saying, right? Sometimes, uh, you know, as a, As a banker, we tell our customers, you know, Mr Farmer, you're in the big leagues of borrowing now. You're in the big leagues of borrowing. And, you know, I don't know what that number is. Is it ten million? Is it twenty million? Is it five million? But it's just a very complex business. I think farmers. Really struggle with anticipating the needs for better financial reporting. Then they also, I think struggle in the area of bringing somebody into the business when they can afford it, and many of them can to to come into the business and whether that person is a you know has strong bookkeeping skills or maybe is a controller or maybe even you know stepping up to a CFO, there's always a challenge where the farmer says, "Well, I don't see the benefit to the cost."
0: Mm-hmm. i just
1: don't see the benefit of the cost you get my tax returns i can prepare a financial statement i've got a cpa but the reality of the matter is that financial reporting is the the primary source of communication with their banker and on top of that i i, I would just say that one of the areas that i think would is would be so helpful to the to the farmers and ranchers that are out there listening to this or This idea of financial reporting and getting your tax returns done and getting the information to the bank just so that they can get their line of credit renewed, that's one thing. But I think farmers could take advantage of understanding a little bit more about managerial accounting to understand to understand the enterprises in their business, what are the costs that are associated with the enterprises to that business, which crops or enterprises are making the money, which ones are not and why is that? is the most valuable tool they can implement but it's been a slow adoption to that and you know you're one of the premier CPAs out there that talk about this all the time <laughs> but but farmers struggle with understanding the benefit of that until they actually employ it and that's yeah. kind of that's kind of what I've been seeing over the years
0: and and certainly there are trends in parts of farming such as let's say dairy or you know, maybe the hog producers who really have a pretty robust set of uh, financial information they understand how to account for those items now they also still take advantage of the cash method of accounting for income tax purposes but they're certainly using accrual accounting to understand what their cost structure is where's the break even and and so on and I just wish that on the crop side that farmers would adopt that a little bit quicker
1: but uh, as you say they've made some progress but they're not where they need to be yet you know that's really a good point you know confined animal operations confined feeding operations dairy cattle poultry hog you know their lenders to those markets have been very vigilant on requiring better financial reporting i don't do business with too many dairies as an example that don't provide me reviewed quality financials I don't do much business with feedlot or hog operations where I'm not getting at least reviewed and in some cases audit quality financial reporting yep and sometimes the you know it's the push-pull theory (laughs) the borrower is pulled by their banker to say look I'm I'm you know i'm willing to grow with you but here are the requirements for that growth is that i need better financial reporting and at the farm level that ch- I, I guess the challenge has always been for the farmer is i said hey my business isn't that complicated i own a bunch of dirt i own some equipment and i got a bunch of inventories well you know one of the things that bankers talk about a lot today is as their the financing needs of these farmers grow is information risk how good is the information you're providing me and accrual based financial reporting whether it's done internally whether it's done through reviewed quality financials audit compiled i don't really you know distinguish between but accrual based reporting is so important I, I, I and if if i could just add one comment here i'm as a banker talking to a farmer here's what I would tell them. You want to get your loans approved. You want to get them approved quicker. You want to get it done with less questions. Provide us accrual based financial reporting. Yep. And it will get done because I know farmers made money in 2021. I know farmers, a lot of farmers that made money in 2020. I know there's going to be a lot of farmers that make money in 2022. But if you provide me tax returns and a self-prepared balance sheet, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to have a whole lot of questions yep, that yep. would normally be answered with accrual-based financials. Yeah, yeah, especially if they got the
0: footnotes that say, "Hey, here's the amount of inventories on hand. Here's how it's costed at. Uh, uh, here's the payables. Here's the deferred payment contracts. Here's the, uh, you know, the accounts payable, which might be extremely high off
1: balance sheet that the lender definitely wants to know about." That's right. That's exactly right. And you get a lot of questions answered that normally we have to go back to the borrower and say, you know, we got questions around this, 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 and this. And, you know, what happens is you end up getting, the borrower gets fatigued, the lender gets fatigued, and, you know, ultimately comes down to, well, you know, we see the guy's net net worth has continued to grow. Um, You know, he either earned it you know or it was under network yep. right just yep. appreciation yep. real estate and it's important to know the difference yep yep yeah.
0: and it's important both for the lender and for the farmer to to know the difference and understand the difference
1: that's correct yep that's exactly right it's exactly right
0: okay well i think kurt uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break for a sponsored message and then we'll come back we'll talk a little bit about uh, land values and and actually we're going to explore a little bit on the history of the Farm Financial Standards Council.
1: Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to the uh, Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Nefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with uh, Kurt Covington from Ag America. And uh, Kurt, um, because you, on a national scale, you loan or do real estate loans. I, I'm just curious, what what are the trends that you happen to be seeing? in land values maybe in the various segments of of the country or the various segments of of the farm community
1: a uh, good question there are very few places that we do business in where land values have not gone up over the last just the last year and of course if you go back the last three years or last four years uh And that increase is somewhere between 1% a year to as high as 6% a year, 13% in some places and given some commodities. Uh, And he's uh, so it's been, I guess, a good thing for farmers and it's can be a good thing for real estate lenders, except they need to understand. I think that land values are a little frothy Mm -hmm. Paul, and I think they're frothy. Well, you know, they're frothy when, you know, corn was selling for three bucks a bushel, but land prices were still going up in those markets and people were going to auctions and paying crazy money for for ground. And a lot of that is they look at this and say, well, if interest rates as low as they are, even if I buy this piece of property, and take on a bunch of additional debt, my blended debt per acre on all my properties is pretty low and I get away with actually buying ground as opposed to leasing it because it's kind of a, you know, you kind of end up economically in the same place. So land values, I think, uh, as we see them today, continue to grow. We've seen markets. uh, I saw some some sales up just completely out of, you know, areas that I do a lot of business in, but us up in North Dakota and we got an appraisal on some properties up there, 3,500 bucks an acre. Six months later, we get a reappraisal and it's up a thousand bucks an acre, a thousand dollars an acre, a thousand dollars. That's a third.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so I think, right. There's right. They're not making any more farm ground. That's what we keep hearing. And you know, that may be true, but I also think it drives farmers to start farming marginal ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've seen that before, right? When corn was 8 bucks and beans were $17, $18, bucks, man, they were planting corn wall to wall on ground that was usually reserved for winter wheat, right? Yeah. And if they got 80 bushels of corn at 8 bucks, it certainly was better than the price they were getting for wheat at the time. So, land values continue to to be very robust and it's a little to me I think it's a little frothy. I I, I
0: tend to agree with you and now I'm also one of those persons that have invested in farmland the last couple of years and I've been happy uh, well I was just reviewing because I crop share all of it and I was reviewing my cash on cash return and when I invested in this ground. I expected maybe a three, maybe a four, know, a good year, a 5% rate of return cash on cash. I thought that was gonna be pretty good. Well, right now I'm almost guaranteed a 10% rate of return and it may go higher, you know, if crop prices stay up, uh, you know, it very easily could be higher than that. So, uh, you know, but I don't expect that over the next 10 years, believe me. I, I think it's gonna have to drop back to that uh, uh, three or 4% range, but then if I, take my cash flow and then value it or take that and base it on the fair market value of my ground right now, you know, I'm probably down in that 5% range
1: because of the of the value of the ground has certainly far exceeded the cost I paid for it. Right. And and it's, it's really interesting as well, right? Because the institutional markets, the private equity funds, the REITs, um, you know, have put a lot of pressure in the farm communities and keep keep raising these land values, uh, uh you know, because a lot of them are out there um, you know, bidding on these properties and they can take down large swaths of ground. Yep. Uh and um, you know, they're it's interesting, you know, that, you know, their kind of profile, as you know, is is you know, generally speaking, if they can get a somewhere between a 10 and 15% return on their investment, which includes the terminal value, in other words, the right. land land appreciation, right? Yep. they're pretty comfortable with that. But yep. you and I don't think that way, Paul. We think I bought this ground, I don't have any intention of selling it in 10 years like the fund does. I'm not sure the land's going to appreciate it 2 or 3% a year each year for the next 10 years, as many of those funds will analyze it as such. Yeah. Yeah. We look at it as we look at it as a more of a hedge against inflation and, you know, a a store of value, right? Generally speaking, land is a store of value for us. It's not something we get rich quick on. So it's kind of I think that's what's kind of driving the whole thing. Yeah.
0: No, I I, I definitely agree. And uh, but I already know it may not be 10 or 20 years but uh once uh my wife and i are gone our boys are probably listing the land within about two days of the final funeral whenever that happens so i i, I already know that so <laughs> right. that's great yeah i, I shouldn't say uh, not from a morbid standpoint but just from a practical standpoint i i know exactly what's going to happen so <laughs>
1: right 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 exactly it's
0: funny and and you know I think for the last part of the podcast here Kurt I'd like to just spend a little time talking over the Farm Financial Standards Council I've been actively involved in that for about the last 12 years now and and I know that it would really came about as part of the farm crisis of the 1980s and so on and and you were more actively involved on the council at the early beginning so I was just curious, maybe you could just tell a little bit of history about the, the Council, how it got started, and and maybe your role in that uh, uh, for that first 10 or 15 years.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're right. But Paul, you've been invaluable to that, uh, to the Farm Financial Standards Council. Yeah. And, and here's what kind of precipitated this. And I, and I have to give credit to the American Bankers Association that was actively involved in this from the beginning as well. And that is, in a, in addition to a couple things that uh, the banking industry was able to uh, get through Congress. The first is uh, the creation of Farmer Mac as a secondary market uh, participant in the purchase of agricultural mortgages, first mortgages. It also was the genesis of the Farm Financial Standards Council on the whole. The, the kind of the genesis of, of all this was is that we realized in our life early on in agricultural lending that particularly in the early 80s we we always felt that if you had dirt you couldn't get hurt yeah well when the you know 1983 84 85 86 hit we found out well that's not really true (laughs) yeah you can have dirt and still get hurt right and that there there were lenders out there that really weren't even really they weren't even masking Uh, the need for a cash flow analysis, understanding the earnings ability of that business and understanding the importance of having, you know, moderate amounts of leverage. Because the thing that you and I have always talked about is, is that leverage kills, right? Leverage kills a farming operation. You put too much leverage on that, there'll come a time when your commodity prices will turn on you and being able to service that uh, amount of debt will not be easy <clears throat> the second thing is i apologize the second thing is is how important it was to understand the issues of working capital right and we've always talked about this paul is you know if leverage kills then working capital is your first defense against commodity price volatility you've got plenty of working capital commodity prices can fall and you can still pay your your operating debts yep Well, we really didn't have any way, farmers just really had no really understanding of any of that. And bankers, frankly, didn't require a lot of it. So the Farm Financial Standards Council was created to come up with standard reporting, much like they do in the, you've been a CPA forever, right? In the commercial Mm -hmm. world, um, where there was a standard set of financial reporting that a business should have not only for the purposes of satisfying the needs of their bankers so that their bankers can analyze a a borrower's performance against others using the same type of financials and the same type of financial ratios to determine number one is this is this you know farm performing what are the trends are they improving and how are they performing against others in their industry without having a set of standards which was the farm financial standards council we had no way of doing this and so it it has it was a labor of love and i i tell you i i just give a lot of people credit for that um including dave cole and the American Bankers Association, the importance of having this as uh, you know, getting it up and running and sharing it with universities, sharing it with high schools, sharing it with bankers. And we continue to build that today. And with people like you, that are so dedicated to that industry. You've added a lot, a whole, whole lot of, you know, clout to the improvements that we have been seeing. And as you know, and I'll finish this by saying, It all started with financial reporting, right? better financial reporting 13 key ratios to look at in your business and measure them on a common basis. But today it's graduated into managerial accounting. And I think that is for farmers and ranchers understanding how to better analyze how the performance of your ranch or your farm in the enterprises is it's not only an important second step, but it makes them better managers and makes them better borrowers of financial institutions.
0: I totally agree. and
1: and again, it's
0: it's you know the standards are are based on generally accepted accounting principles, which when a farmer hears that term or gap, they're like, "Oh, no, but we also try to keep it practical. I mean, there's there's right. a you know, a, well, I'm going to call it practical gap. you know, we're we're not, uh, we're not trying to necessarily force a farmer to use all the normal trappings of gap accounting, but we're trying to help them understand here from an accrual basis standpoint, here's the standards, here's the ratios, here's what you should be looking at, and then here's how that managerial accounting can help your farm do better, You know, be more efficient, be more profitable.
1: Yeah. And there's always that fear of getting started, right? The farmer says, well, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know where to start. Well, this isn't a once and done deal. No, I think I think you would admit. And yeah. you, I mean, you're out in that market all day long. This is a five year process.
0: Yeah. Starting yep.
1: and having something is better than not having anything at all.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The trip of a thousand miles begins with one step. That's and right. If you don't, and if you don't take that first step, you're not going to ever do that trip, so That's right. you know, farmers just need to, you know, take that step. And there's certainly, and it isn't necessarily uh, even a CPA. There are many consultants out there that can help you get going on that process, can help you get it implemented, and it, and it's not that painful, you know. So uh, right. I just want to let people know it's not that painful. Maybe the first few steps are a little tougher, but once you get the, you know, three or four steps under your belt, you're going to be fine.
1: Well, Paul, you're the master. You stood up in front of farmers every year. I sit, I'm there with you and watching you do it. And you know, the, it, it's, you, you can see in their eyes, those that have taken the next step to do this because they start yep. asking you really good questions. Yep. And you can also see the fear and the glazed over look of the ones that are going, okay, I, I'm not doing this, but I think I need to figure out how to do this.
0: Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. Well again, Kurt, thank you for uh, taking time out of your day. Uh, Actually, it it was funny for the audience out there, Kurt and I were trying to do this yesterday and I had gone up to our Yakima office, which from my house is a two and a half hour drive. So I pull into the office and that office is not what we call the early bird office. And (laughs) so I go up to the front door with my little fob and nothing and I go to the employee door, nothing. And so I sit there for about an hour waiting for somebody to show up, and I told Kurt, hey, let's postpone it till today. And then we tried to do it earlier today, and we had some technical issues, but I think we got it all squared away, and, uh, and I think we ended up with a pretty good podcast.
1: We did, and I really appreciate you uh, having me on.
0: Well, no, no, I definitely appreciate for, for you coming on the podcast. And again, for everybody out there, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. Uh, this is Paul for your host, and we're signing off.